So one of the most quotable movies of all time is The Princess Bride. Agreed? Uh, so this movie's made back in 1987, and it's received like a cult-like following that spans generations. Uh, many people can drop a line from The Princess Bride. If you don't know The Princess Bride, uh, grace and peace on you today. Uh, go watch it this weekend. So. Wesley, Buttercup, Prince Humperdinck, Inigo Montoya, Six Finger Man, The Giant. It's these classic characters. Um, without retelling the story, we could spend the whole time talking about that movie. I won't. But there's a scene where someone falls off a cliff and Vizzini, the Sicilian criminal, he runs up and looks and he, he, he says his famous line, which is, Inconceivable, right, with a lisp. Well, I, I think it's just 10 seconds. Just here's the clip. He didn't fall? Inconceivable. You keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. All right. I'm not sure you can hear it. Harder to hear. But he says inconceivable. Let me go ahead and put it up on the screen. Excellent. And then he says, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. And that has become like a meme and a gif and quotable quote that you can use almost in many situations. Like, you keep using that word. And I don't think it means what you think it means. And today, today we're starting a new series. So if you've been with us, We've been, this year, spending time in this series of the life of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we're gonna come back to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob here after Easter. But we're kind of putting a pause on our time with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As we've now entered the Lenten season and these weeks leading up to Easter, we're gonna spend some time, actually these next six weeks, in a different book of the Bible to prepare us for Lent, prepare us for Easter. So we're going to use the book of Jonah. And so today, as we step now, we're going to kind of put that aside and step into shift gears and step into the book of Jonah. In the season of Lent, where oftentimes in Lent you will hear people talk about repenting. So Jonah, Lent, repent. I do not think those words mean what you may think they mean. Like, what, what is the book of Jonah all about? I do not think it means what you think it means. What is Lent? I do not think it means what you think it means. Repent. Repent. I do not think it means what you think it means. So today's gonna to be more of an intro to get us into the book of Jonah, into Lent, thinking about repenting. And hopefully we'll understand what it means, not just what you think it means. So, let's start with Jonah. Do you know the story of Jonah? Yes. Are you confident that you know the story of Jonah? I do not think it means what you think it means. 
Now, some of you may be new to the Bible. Welcome. Some of you are new to church. Welcome. Some of you may have no idea who Jonah is. Great. Actually, probably even better because you carry no Jonah baggage. But most people, most Christians, most church-attending Jesus followers have learned about the story of Jonah from either a kid's Bible, a Sunday school lesson flannel graph, or VeggieTales. And that colors our understanding of the story of Jonah. So in that vein, most people think that Jonah is about Jonah and the Jonah and the whale, Jonah and the big fish. Jonah actually has very little to do with the big fish. Yes, he gets swallowed. It's never called the whale, by the way. He gets swallowed by a big fish. It's part of the story. There are two more chapters after he gets swallowed by the big fish that don't show up in most kids' Bibles. So, my friends, Jonah is not primarily about a big fish but that message gets reinforced over and over again. Here's a simple Google search. (laughs) Look at at that. What a happy happy whale he is. The hard to swallow tale of Jonah and the whale, and he's there opening the mouth of the whale up, right? Uh, Jonah in the smelly belly of the fish. Um, Or next slide here. Now, so this is, we've got little Bible heroes. Little chubby, little chubby Bible heroes. Jonah is not a Bible hero, just so you know. As we read the story, he's not the hero. Grumpy little Jonah. This is actually more accurate of what Jonah is like. Um, Jonah and the very big fish. But Jonah is not primarily about a whale or a big fish, and he does get swallowed, but there's more to the story. So again, we're gonna read the first three verses today. We'll get into the next part of the story from there. But if you have a Bible, open to Jonah chapter one, verse one. Let me read these opening lines of the story. It says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So in order to understand really what this book is even, as a book, we get some clues. Uh, Context helps us. The Bible actually helps us understand itself. Context is always king to understand the story. So this opening line, it says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Now based on some other books of the Bible, that opening should tell you what kind of book this is. So check this out. If you want to flip there, you can. But look at Micah 1.1 or Hosea 1.1 or Zephaniah 1.1. And maybe you'll sense a pattern. Those books all open up with this. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morsheth. Hosea 1.1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beri. Zephaniah 1.1. The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi. Do you sense a pattern? Now, the word of the Lord came to a person, son of another person. This is how most of the books of the prophets open. 
when Jonah opens, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, our biblical idea, our biblical memories are being jogged. Oh, this is a prophetic book. This is a book about one of the prophets, like Micah, like Hosea, like Zephaniah. Prophets have this experience when the word of the Lord comes to them. It's the pattern. So we open this book up, we're like, what's Jonah all about? Oh, this first line is like, oh, this is a prophet. The word of the Lord is coming to him. But Jonah's not your ordinary prophet. So typically, as you read these prophets, Micah, Hosea, Zephaniah, Jeremiah, Isaiah, the word of the Lord comes to them, and most of the book then is about the message that they deliver. And there will be some of the message that's given through Jonah, but Jonah's a different kind of prophet, and his, his book has far less to do with his message or the words that he gives, and it has far more to do with the story of his life. Or another way of putting it is that Jonah's life is the message of the book, not just his words. He will speak some words, but he speaks very little words. But to pick up the message of the prophetic book of Jonah is to look at the life of Jonah. Not just what he says, but what he does. And not just what he does, but what's going on on the inside of Jonah. That's actually a bigger clue to the message of the book of Jonah. Because again, contrary to our little Google search here, Jonah's not the hero of the story. He is a prophet, but he does his life and he engages the word of the Lord very differently than the other prophets do. And we realize that Jonah's life carries a message all of its own. So the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, chapter one, verse one. What's the word? Well, God has a job for Jonah to do. Next slide, Jonah one, verse two. God tells Jonah, arise, get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Again, context and background helps fill out the story for us. So God, and this ties our last series, Yahweh, the the covenant God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, many years later, has now found messenger, a prophet, that he wants to deliver a word through. And he wants him to go and deliver a message to Nineveh. Like, where is Nineveh? What's Nineveh? I have no idea. I live in Olympia. Nineveh. What's that? It rhymes. I'm a poet. Nineveh is an extremely large ancient city. In fact, if you look at the end of the book of Jonah, chapter four, we're told that Nineveh had 120,000 people in it, which is a big city back then. It's kind of a big city now. It's bigger than Olympia. But back then, it was a massive ancient city. If you think about where it's located, it was in the east bank of the Tigris River in the nation of Assyria. So ancient, modern day now, Egypt, Israel, modern day Iraq. Nineveh was founded by a man named Nimrod, which maybe gives you some clue about how that city went, dating back to 4500 BC. So here's what we have. 
the Lord God rouses this Hebrew prophet out of his place, out of his home. He's hanging out in North Israel and says, I want you to go to Nineveh, to pagan land, to the Gentiles. I had hundreds of miles away from where you're at, 8th century BC, to go to a foreign people in a foreign land, and I want you to tell them a message from me. Why? Because we're told here in these opening lines that their wickedness, that their evil has now risen up into the presence and the sight of God. God's taking note of their wickedness, and God is giving them a warning. Now, here in the text, we're just told that they're doing evil. They're doing wickedness. If you read history, the Ninevites, the Assyrian Empire, they were brutal. So there's a lot you can read about them if you want to go ahead and take the time, but history tells us that the Assyrian Empire was one of the most cruel, brutal, violent, militaristic people ever. So we have scores of accounts, military leaders would torture, dismember, decapitate their conquest, just gory. They would cut off one arm and leg so they could shake their hand in mockery and defeat. They would stack heads on poles. They would burn people alive. They would stretch out their skin. Like this really graphic, violent, evil things. Which is why again in chapter one, God says, arise, go to Nineveh, call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So there's a sense in which God is saying to this people, hey, enough is enough, and I'm going to send a messenger to you. So Jonah, get up, arise, and I want you to go. Go to Nineveh. So here's how this, the story of the prophet starts. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah. You, arise, go, deliver my message to this people. And Jonah doesn't obey. In fact, he doesn't just like ignore God. He actively goes the opposite way that God tells him to. Verse three. We have it on the slide. There we go. But Jonah, so God says, arise, go to Nineveh. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Maybe this map helps you visually see. So here's Joppa where Jonah's hanging out. Jonah, I've got a word for you. I want you to get up and go to Nineveh. And Jonah goes, oh, really? I'm going to hop on a ship, and I'm going to head to Tarshish. I'm going to Spain. I'm going to the Straits of Gibraltar. I'm going... I'm going to the furthest part of the map of the known world... I'm going as far away from the place that you call me as I possibly can get. Jonah is not the Bible hero. Jonah is disobedient. Jonah's running away. Now, you say, well, why did Jonah want to run away? 
And I've heard this said many times, well, maybe he was scared. Maybe he had heard, maybe he saw on Twitter just how bad the Assyrians were. Maybe he heard about like the heads stacked on poles and maybe he heard about the skin stretching and the decapitation and all that. Like, I'm not going to them, they're brutal people. And if I come and bring a message of judgment, maybe they're gonna, they'll kill me. Maybe that's why he ran. But here's the thing about the story of Jonah. You don't have to wonder why he runs because later in the story, Jonah tells us why he runs. And it's not because he was afraid. It's not because he was scared. It's not because he wanted to protect his life. The reason why he didn't want to obey was because he hated them. And he didn't want any good to come to them. And so the word of the Lord comes to him. He's like, I'm not going. I'm not giving them a chance to repent. I don't want anything good to happen to those people because those people are horrible. You ever had those people? Not us. Because we're not like Jonah. I don't think this book means what you think it means. So for the next few weeks, we're gonna watch what happens when the prophet of the Lord runs away from the Lord. So one more thing about Jonah. It's not about the fish. We'll talk about the fish. Fish happens. It's not the center point of the story. He's not a normal prophet. His life is the message of the book, not just what he says. But then also, I just want you to appreciate this with me. Maybe you can Bible nerd with me a little bit through these next month. But this book is filled with satire. This book is actually funny. This book is meant to make you laugh uncomfortably. Um, Guess what satire is? So here's the definition of satire. It's the use of humor, irony, exaggeration, or ridicule to expose and criticize people's stupidity or vices, particularly in the context of contemporary politics and other topical issues. So humor, it's like this subtle jab, irony, things get exaggerated to point out things. So we have satire in our culture. Next slide. Political cartoons. Notice I picked a Democrat and a Republican to be ridiculed, just fair here. And so in political cartoons, all the features are exaggerated, right? And there's certain characteristics or vices that get pointed out in political cartoons. And sometimes that's not funny, Uh uh-huh, it's satire. (laughs) Or we have this, next slide, Saturday Night Live which I don't really watch anymore, but there was, I usually watch them during the political seasons because they take jabs at people and they point out people's flaws and exaggerations to point out how ridiculous we are. That's the book of Jonah. There's humor. It, it will be times as we read the book of Jonah where I will like cue the laugh track and things are, exa- in the story of Jonah, everything is a little bit exaggerated and He talks about Nineveh as the great city. It's like like seven or eight times. It's the big city. It's the great city. Everything is exaggerated a bit. And when they repent, man, they repent. Even in Nineveh, the king repents and the common people repent and the cows repent. Yeah, you're supposed to laugh at that, right? 
Or even here, we've had this in the first few lines of the book of Jonah. What does Jonah want to do? Okay, he wants to run away, but it says it twice in the first three verses. He's want to leave. What's he want to leave? Okay, it's, it's why he left, but what does he want to leave? The presence of the Lord. <laughs> That's funny. That's hilarious. Guess what? You can't leave the presence of the Lord. And he's a Hebrew prophet. He should know that. Goodness, Psalm 139 says that, right? You ever read Psalm 139? Where shall I go from your presence? If I go up in the heights, you're there. If I go in the depths, you're there. If I go to the furthest parts of the sea, if I travel all the way to Timbuktu and Tarshish, guess what? You're there. Boy, that's really funny that the prophet of the Lord, he says, I'm going to hop on a boat. I'm going to run away from God. That's good. That's rich. But guess what? We often think that we can run away from God too. I do not think this story means what you think it means. So, Jonah the prophet of the Lord, he wants to flee the presence of the Lord. And with exaggerated features, we watch his story unfold. Someone's running away from God. No one in this room ever has done that before. Someone in this story has heard God's word and gone and done the opposite. Someone carries and bears the name as a messenger of Yahweh, and yet they're doing whatever he pleases. So this is not a cute, cuddly, friendly Bible hero. Something serious is going on inside of Jonah. Which brings us to Lent. I've been asked, why would you study Jonah (laughs) during the season of Lent? What is Lent? And some of you may know it really well. Others, you're like, I really don't even quite get it. I don't have a clue. Again, it's this 40-day period before Easter where the church historically has prepared her heart, often by laying down things, often again with fasting, to make room and space for the fullness of life with God. But in time and with tradition, Lent has become for many just about fasting, or some have critiqued Lent. I'm like, why would you fast? Why would you lay things down for 40 days? Some have critiqued it saying, oh, you just want to show God how much you can suffer. (laughs) Or Lent becomes about legalism or about punishment or punishment avoidance or punishing yourself or duty, spiritual performance, moralism, trying to make God happy through outward signs of devotion. So for some people, they give up chocolate For some people, they give up coffee. Some people give up social media, Netflix. Others, Lent becomes a joke. I have a friend on Facebook. He posted this week, I'm giving up running marathons for Lent. 
he doesn't run. So like, let me think of the thing that I don't like to do anyway, and I'll give that up for Lent. And so it's like, ha, 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 I'm giving up running marathons for Lent. Me too, ah. And it's just like, it's meaningless. I do not think Lent means what you think it means. A writer, Esau Macaulay, he's written a little book on Lent. He says that Lent is the season in which all of us can recapture our love for God and his kingdom and cast off those things that so easily entangle us. Rand reminded me, uh, maybe you don't know this, but through the season of Lent, even for those who fast, on Sundays, you give up your fast. Sundays in, in, in celebration of resurrection that's to come, you don't fast because it's not just about legalism and duty, but it's about grace and recapturing the wonder of the love of God, but being willing to lay down the things that would easily ensnare you and get in the way of the fullness of life and grace in the kingdom of Jesus. So often in Lent, in preparation, in examination, people are given the opportunity to repent. So let's come to that idea, repent. What does it mean to repent? I do not think it means what many think it means. For some, repentance is a dirty word. Or all they can hear of when they think of repent is like sinners in the hands of an angry God or an angry pastor just like pointing their finger down at them, yelling at them to repent. For some, it's a loaded word. For some, it's a heavy word. For some, it's a negative word. For some, repentance is tied to one more thing that you have to do. For some, repentance is tied to your guilt and shame. For some, the idea is to avoid repentance. If I just live a good enough life, I won't have to repent. To do it rarely, to have to do it infrequently. When actually repentance is grace. Repentance is a gift. Repentance simply means to turn. To turn from sin, yes, but to turn from death and to turn from ways that don't satisfy, broken cisterns, broken wells, to turn from habits and patterns and systems and thoughts and behaviors that really in the end only kill us. To turn back to the one who in his love has given everything in Jesus that we may have the fullness of life. God is not out to kill you in the sense of ruin your life and make it horrible. He wants you to join him as the source of life. He wants you to live in the fullness of his joy and his presence and his peace that is marked by the kingdom of God. And so the gift is to return often, <laughs> always, from the things that would kill and destroy to the one who is the source of your life. Amen. A couple of those who have gone before us, A.W. Tozer, repentance is not a meritorious act. Repentance is a condition we need in order that God, already wanting to be good to us, can be good to us, forgiving and cleansing us. God's heart for us is good things. 
And through repentance, through confession and repentance and the turning back to him, he can lavish on us that which he desires to give us. Another quote, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, if you board the wrong train, it is no use running along the corridor in the other direction. Right, you get the picture? I boarded the wrong train, I'm headed this way, so I'll just run in the corridor of the train heading in the wrong direction. That's not repentance. It's not running the corridor on the train headed the wrong direction. Rich Lotus says repentance means getting off the train and going the other way. So in this season, we have the chance to not just like, I'm gonna run in the, I'm gonna run in the opposite direction, but I'm gonna get off the train, and I'm gonna go back to the place that God has had for me all along. It's not done out of this heaviness of legalism and weight. It is, it is the most freeing thing to actually get where you're meant to be all along. Which leads us back to Lent and leads us back to Jonah. This is why we're looking at Jonah because it makes us reassess a lot of things. In the book of Jonah, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys? Typically, we read the Bible like, well, Jonah's the good guy, the Ninevites are the bad guys, right? The religious person's the good guy, the, the pagan Gentiles are the bad guys. But in the book of Jonah, what happens is the Gentiles are all really quick to repent, like really quick. And it's the religious prophet who has this deep-seated hard-heartedness and hatred, and he refuses. Who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? What does it mean to repent? Who needs to repent? We think we read the story that the Ninevites need to repent. At the end of the story of Jonah, we realize Jonah needs to repent. So here's the story of Jonah. I'm not gonna ruin it for you, you may know it. We'll get to it in the weeks to come. But we're invited to watch the message of the life of Jonah in all of its satire and humor. And as we watch, it's like we're invited to watch the TV show or watch the movie. We're watching, we're watching the Netflix special called Jonah. And by the time the screen goes dark, we realize that we're not just watching a movie about Jonah, but we're watching a a picture about the people of Israel and their story. And then as the screen goes dark, we realize actually it wasn't just a movie we're watching, we're looking at a mirror. And I can see my face in the screen. And that's what this book is meant to do, is to get you caught up in watching Jonah and watching what he's doing, and pretty soon you realize, I'm looking in the mirror. And I see stuff in him that I would rather not acknowledge in me. And then there's the opportunity. Do you want to repent? So over these next six weeks, we'll be looking at the story. But this is the beginning place with this question. When you look in the mirror of Jonah, what do you see? Here we have a prophet who supposedly knows the Lord and the word of the Lord comes to him and says, I want you to go over here. And he's like, 
No, I'm going over here, and I'm going to get as far away from the presence of you as possible. What do you see when you look in the mirror of Jonah? How might you be running away from the word of the Lord? It's a good question for Lent. The opportunity again to repent. To not just run on the train corridor, but to get off the train. Because there is one who came who fully obeyed the Father's word and didn't run to Tarshish. But he willingly went to Calvary and he laid down his life in obedience to pay the penalty for all of our disobedience. And there's a chance today to taste forgiveness and grace and life and freedom in him. Let's pray. Lord God, this next season, we offer ourselves before the mirror of your word. And we would ask, God, in your kindness, would you show us the things that are obvious, yes, but God, would you even show us the stuff that's hidden deep down? Would you make us more and more like Jesus? Because that is, that is so good. Would you keep us from the stuff that will kill us and destroy us? And will you invite us deeper into this life of intimacy with you, of union with you, and in your world? Lord, for the attitudes that we have, Lord, toward those people that we think don't deserve to hear of grace. God, change us. Forgive us. For the places where we are actively doing the thing you said you don't want us to do or running away from that which you have called us to. Forgive us. Change us. Renew us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.